This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Music can slow up an action, but should not be slowed up. Music can also speed up an action, but it should be speeded up. To know when you do that, that makes a good picture scorer. And I've always tried to submerge myself or to subordinate subordinate, that's it. Myself to the picture. A lot of picture scorers make a big mistake. They think that this is a concert platform in which they show off what they can do. The minute a man does that, a composer is a dead duck. Because this is not the place. That is on the concert platform. Hello again. My name is Jason Drury, and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks. During a seven-decade career, which spanned from 19th century Vienna, 1920s Broadway, to the golden age of Hollywood, Max Steiner did more than any other composer to introduce and establish the language of film music. In July 2020, the book Music by Max Steiner, The Epic Life of Hollywood's Most Influential Composer, was published interweaving the dramatic incidents of Steiner's personal life with a highly accessible exploration of his composing methods and experiences. In June 2021 for Talking Soundtracks, I had the great pleasure of talking to the author of that book, four-time Emmy-nominated journalist, writer and producer of over 200 documentaries about music and cinema, Stephen C. Smith, via Zoom at his home in Southern California. In part one of this two-part edition, we talk about how the book came about and begin to delve into the musical career of Max Steiner, featuring music from King Kong, Gone with the Wind, and much, much more. If you are not a fan of the music of Max Steiner at the start of these shows, I assure you, after listening to this interview, you soon will be.
Stephen C. Smith, welcome to Talking Soundtracks. How did your interest in film music come about? Well, I was very fortunate in that my older brother Wayne was a Broadway performer when I was the age of nine. And he moved in an interesting circle of people like a writer for The Hollywood Reporter named Robert Osborne, who went on to be the host of Turner Classic Movies and who wrote many wonderful books. So between my brother Wayne and Bob Osborne, I had wonderful mentors who introduced me to the world of film and theater music and film music. And I recently found drawings that my brother and I did together. He's 17 years older than I am. Uh, so he was more sort of like my cool uncle, but we would be drawing King Kong and believe it or not, scenes from Psycho and all the universal horror films together. And I just realized that from the age of, you know, <laughs> five or six on, probably I was starting to watch these movies, whether or not I should have. And by eight, I vividly remember film music. I can remember my first film scores that really hit me when I was eight years old. So through my brother and through Bob, I was able to meet a number of people in the industry. I live in Los Angeles, grew up here. And my brother would drive me to the motion picture retirement home where many silent film actors were and Larry Fine of the, th of the Three Stooges I would go and visit. All these interesting people who at that time didn't receive as many visitors as they would now. You know, this is the 1970s we're talking about. So I was very fortunate and it was an age of course of wonderful LPs and new recordings being made, the Charles Gerhardt albums of classic film scores. And I vividly remember the first time I saw Psycho on television. Uh, and I vividly remember the first time I saw King Kong. And I felt like I was one of Carl Denham's crew running across that log, trying to hang on and save Andero. Uh, so the music of, of both uh, Herman and Steiner was happily imprinted on me at a very early age. How did you become a fan of Max Steiner? Well, it was easy. The movies were being shown, although, as I later realized, often quite cut down on our local television and with many commercials. But somehow that didn't interfere with the magic of these classic films being shown. And I started studying piano at age five and through my teens was a, a, a pianist who would make money on the side playing for local events and all of that. And I think vaguely I hoped for some career in music until I went to college and realized at the University of Southern California how good you had to really be <laughs> to be a professional musician. But I didn't want to waste all those years of studying music theory and piano. So I decided when I realized that there was no book on Bernard Herrmann and I was a 19-year-old undergraduate at college with no clear plan for the future, I decided to at least interview some of the people who knew Bernard Herrmann, since some of them were professors at the college I was going to, and see if I could collect those interviews into a book. And over the next eight years, that evolved into my first real professional project, which was that biography of Bernard Herrmann, A Heart at Fire Center, that was published in 1991. And by the time it was published, I knew I wanted to be a, and was a professional journalist writing about film music. And then later I became a documentary producer for American television and, and other places. So I feel very lucky that listening to the music of Max and Benny as a kid steered me toward a, a career path that I didn't quite see ahead of me. What documentary subjects have you done? Well, I produced about 200 programs for American television. There was a series that was on a great deal in America and to a lesser degree in Britain and other countries called A&E Biography. And I was one of the overseers of that series, producing profiles of really anyone. They did everyone from Albert Einstein to Adolf Hitler. And luckily, I was in the middle doing Hollywood people. So I could say, hey, let's do a profile of the Nicholas Brothers or Ethel Merman or Donna Amici or uh, Maureen O'Hara, all these wonderful people. 
And uh, I produced a series for a network we have here called American Movie Classics, AMC, a series called Backstory that, at least for its first several years, was about the making of classic films. And of course, that was my favorite subject. So I got to work on, on films that were scored by my favorite people and use their music in these documentaries. So I was very fortunate to have a, a life that allowed me to go interview Gene Kelly and Ann Miller on a good day and Sid Charisse from the MGM films and on the Herman Project. And again, I barely knew what I was doing at 19, but I got to interview Miklas Rocha, Ray Bradbury, Ray Harryhausen, you know, all these wonderful people that worked with Herman throughout his career. And I was very surprised when in 2015, I was invited by Oxford University Press to write a biography of Max Steiner. Surprised because Max passed away in 1971 and virtually all of his contemporaries were gone. And I was, working full-time as a documentary producer, but I could not turn down such an invitation. And it came as a result of the fact that my Herman book had stayed in print for about 30 years. <laughs> and it was an honor. So even though I knew I it would be working through the weekends and every, every holiday I and, and vacation day I could take off and getting up at four in the morning to write for four hours before going to my normal job, I knew it would be a wonderful adventure. And what I didn't expect, though, was that I actually ended up with more primary sources on Steiner, who again passed away in 1991, than I had on Herman, who had died just about eight years before I began my book, and many, many more of his contemporaries, Herman's contemporaries were alive, and I interviewed you know everyone that I could find. So I had the great good fortune on the Herman book of having his contemporaries with me, and his three wives were all very cooperative, and his widow Norma still had many of his papers, so I had access to his correspondence and such. I was very fortunate that a wonderful archivist in America named James Dark approached Max Steiner's widow, as well as Max's third wife out of four, Louise. Louise was his harpist and the mother of his only son, as well as his third wife. James got all of Max's papers from Max's widows, and he also got the collection of Max's third wife, Louise, which was almost as voluminous as Max's collection. And when I say Max's papers, I don't just mean papers, correspondence, his pencil scores, his diaries, and his recordings. And Max is the only composer I know of who from 1931 on was keeping acetates and then copies of magnetic tapes, you know, as technology changed, he kept the recording sessions of his scores, not all of them, and some were in very incomplete, and sometimes there would just be one cue, perhaps, or two, but some would be complete and have the outtakes and the false starts and the talking to the orchestra. I, I could practically tell you what Max had for breakfast on most of the days of his adult life. And because he was a third generation Steiner, a third generation of accomplishment in the family, he had family papers going back to his grandfather, his grandfather, Maximilian, after whom he was named, and who commissioned Johann Strauss Jr. to write operettas like Deflator Mouse. So it was a really phenomenal family story to tell, and I had the papers to tell it with that had not, in many cases, been published before. It is a fascinating story how he became the film composer he was. His background produced, in a way, film music as we know today, but in some exactly. ways. Yes, yes. Well, we'll start talking about Max Steiner in general now. What exactly do you see was Max Steiner's musical background? Max Steiner's background was ideally eclectic for the career that he would ultimately have. One, of course, that he couldn't possibly have envisioned in his childhood. He was born in Vienna in 1888 
And his father was a showman named Gabor Steiner. And I'm sure many of your listeners have seen the film The Third Man and recall the famous Ferris wheel that we see in Vienna that Harry Lyme and Joseph Cotton's character ride on. Well, that Ferris wheel was put up by Max Steiner's father, Gabor, as part of a Disneyland-like amusement park called Venice in Vienna that was this recreation of Venice, Italy within Prater Park in Vienna. And it was about a third of the size of the grounds of Buckingham Palace, I've read. It was enormous. And it had everything from gondolas in canals and rebuilt palazzos. But inside those palazzos, there would be gift shops or beer halls, and there would be roller coaster rides and this incredible famous Ferris wheel. It was a real potpourri of attractions. And most remarkably, Gabor, in 1896, hearing about this new exhibition of the Lumiere brothers in France, imported a motion picture projector and installed a movie theater in the park in 1896. So, oh, and I should also mention that the Steiners were also involved in symphonic music and were good friends with Johann Strauss Jr., Richard Strauss, they knew Gustav Mahler. So Gabor, Max's father, would produce symphonic concerts and operas, but he also ran a vaudeville theater and this young 20 something juggler named W.C. Fields from America was among the many people who came to perform there and became a lifelong friend of Max's. And so Max was on the one hand, he knew Mahler and Strauss. On the other hand, he was going to a vaudeville theater. He was listening to Deflator Mouse written by Johann Strauss Jr., who gave him a piano. And his father was showing the very first movies ever made in his park. So it was this ideal hodgepodge or, or assemblage of genres. And I think it taught Max very early on not to be a snob and to respect what audiences liked while also being drawn to what was then the avant-garde music. And a few years later of, say, Stravinsky, you know, Max was fascinated by new dissonant music. And when you listen to the score of King Kong, which was begun in late 1932 and finished in 1933, that is as edgy as music got at the time. I mean, it is very, very dissonant. And you can hear a lot of Stravinsky influence in that, along with Max's own Viennese background. So he was born into a world as if it was made for him to absorb all the kind of culture happening around the world so that at age 41, when he had lived a whole lifetime of other work and he comes to Hollywood at age 41, he is ready to begin writing one great film score after another, something he does to virtually the end of his life. It's just a remarkable story. It is. And within your book, I think one of the most important parts of that preparation for his destiny of scoring films was his work in the West End in the UK and Broadway. Yes. How important was that, do you think, in Steiner's approach to writing eventually the new medium of scoring motion pictures? Yes. Max's experience working in Britain and then later on Broadway was tremendously important to his future career being a film composer. The Steiners were the Ziegfelds of Vienna until 1908, when inevitably his father uh, declared bankruptcy, not for the first time, but for the first serious time. And if your name was Steiner, there were creditors looking for you. <laughs> so Max both knew it was probably wise to work elsewhere, and he had also fallen in love with a British showgirl who he discovered had married someone else by the time he got to London. But it was one of many amorous adventures that did not end well for Max, although it was nice while it lasted. But he came to Britain and was surprised to find initially he couldn't get hired for a long time. He 
he struggled for a while, but then he ultimately was conducting at the London Opera House and conducting musical reviews. This was a period of 1908 to 1914. So it was before what we think of as the book musical, you know, the, the musical that has a story with songs written for particular characters. It's more a collection of different acts, but they were tremendously popular shows. And he really rose to the top of his profession by 1914. How was it important for his film work? Well, because shows were being constantly rewritten, he had to work very, very quickly and rewrite parts very quickly. He would write the underscoring and probably the most prestigious job he had while he was working in London was writing music for the Shakespeare productions of Sir Herbert Beerbaum Tree at His Majesty's Theatre. At that time, it was His Majesty's Theatre. And Max was uncredited. But he, I confirmed that he did write the music and he talked with Beerbaum Tree and left some records of those conversations. And they would cover the orchestra pit with kind of floral decorations, almost kind of like the way you would dial the sound down on a film score. But both in Britain and on Broadway, Max learned that in a time before microphones were being used in theaters, how critical it was to orchestrate and conduct in a way that the music did not overwhelm the human voice of say the singer, or if it was speech, the speech. And really with those Beerbaum tree productions of Shakespeare, he is in effect doing the same thing he'll do in Hollywood. He's writing music to underscore dialogue. He was tremendously influential and he was addicted to work throughout his life. It's a great benefit for us that he was because he, he left us with so much wonderful music. It was definitely uh, problematic in his life, because I don't want to give away everything that happens in his story. But let's just say that I believe that people's greatest strength is also often their greatest weakness. And the fact that Max loved to create, and he didn't seem to have really writer's block, and he desperately wanted to be part of so many projects and work so hard that, of course, that takes a toll on family, on relationships, on marriages. And he he paid dearly in that way. But I don't think he could help it any more than Bernard Herrmann could help the tantrums that he would often explode into, especially when someone was not putting the project first. You know, some of Herman's explosions were simply irrational, but sometimes they were motivated by people who were thinking, let's say, more commercially or less ideally than he was. In that same way, I think that Max couldn't help but always want to try to write music, to conduct, to work with people. He was extremely gregarious. We might diagnose him as bipolar nowadays. It's, it's impossible to say. At the time, they would have called him manic because he would literally stay up for days and days to write a score under some impossible deadline in Hollywood and complete it and conduct it and record it and sometimes come back after the preview to write more music, even if he had a 104 degree fever. And then he would go into kind of a slump of sadness for a day or two until he had to do another one. So he was really a remarkable person. I'm astonished that he lived to the age of 83. But I think that in Hollywood, either you worked so hard that you had a heart attack at 50 or you were someone like a Max Steiner who was just unstoppable. Max, how did you get to Hollywood? On the train. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what brought all this about? I was doing a show. Oh, I did a lot of shows, and I worked for everybody, Gershwin, Kern. And I did a show called Sons of Guns. And William LeBaron, who was then the president of RKO, came just to the opening. I had an orchestra of 35 men, and every one of my men played about five different instruments. And we had, at one time, we had 
30 violins, then we had 20 trumpets, I did all the orchestrations and everything. And he was out of his mind. When, when the show was over, he came down to the pit, I was playing the exit march, and he says, Max, will you come and see me tomorrow? You've got to come to Hollywood. And I said, all right. Two weeks later, I came to Hollywood. So Sana went into the film industry at the infancy of the talkies, when incidental music was used in silent films, and but they were wondering how they can use it in talkies with the thought that where would the music be coming from now this more or less completely changed when Steiner composed his classic score for King Kong however there were some other film scores beforehand which kind of sold the seed for King Kong which of these scores were important in Steiner's musical development before he tackled King Kong. And I will just back up to say that, yes, you're quite right. It defies logic. But in spite of the fact that silent films were always accompanied by music, the literalism of sound film, not to mention the limits of the technology at the very beginning, made studios and filmmakers often reluctant to put any music in films that wasn't directly motivated by, say, an on-camera band or orchestra or singer. And Max was brought to Hollywood in 1929, just as the talkies, just as Hollywood switched from being a mixture of silent and sound to sound film only at the major studios. So it couldn't have been a better time because the industry, as we know from a movie like Singing in the Rain or, or from books that we've read, it really was in a state of chaos. They were trying to figure out how to do everything from properly record people's voices to, to combine it with music. And Max was always interested not only in musical drama, which was first and foremost, but with technology. And as the sound equipment changed, he very quickly evolved and changed his methods. The hardest thing he had to do, as you mentioned, Jason, was convince people at the studios to let him write music for scenes that didn't obviously have music. That is underscore. And you will find bits of it here and there. But it's true that producers would often say, but Max, won't the audience say, where is the music coming from? That finally changed in 1932, about two years into his time in Hollywood, when RKO, a perpetually struggling studio, hired yet another chief executive who turned out to be brilliant. And his name was David O. Selznick, very early in his career. And Selznick loved music and film. He and Steiner clicked immediately. And he said, you're absolutely right, Max, let's put a lot more music in movies. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. But the first film, just for the record, that has a real, it has the first Max Steiner score. And as far as I can tell, the first score that really has developed themes where instruments are chosen based to complement or stay away from the timbre of an actor's voice. A real film score of complexity. The first one is 1932's Symphony of Six Million which was the first film that sells Nick Greenlit. So that is by far the most important. And I was gobsmacked when I went to UCLA archives, which fortunately has many of Steiner's scores and certainly tons of correspondence on each film and the letters and the screenplays. And I opened the screenplay of Symphony of Six Million, written obviously before they shot it. And page one of the screenplay says, and this is a paraphrase, but it's close, Note, this entire film will be accompanied by a symphonic underscoring. So in other words, before a frame of film is shot, they are envisioning underscoring as part of the film. And I looked at the daily production reports and there was even a little spot saying what kind of underscoring there, there might be, not kind of what the characters would be hearing, but what kind of underscore would be. So this was really revolutionary. Fortunately for us, it was very well received by audiences and critics. And RKO made it a big part of the film's publicity. Yeah. 
it was like a, the firing of a starter's pistol because in the year of 1932, which was the only year that Selznick was at RKO, he left for a better offer at MGM after a year. But during that year, he and Max worked on Bird of Paradise, a King Vidor jungle romance with Joel McRae and Dolores Del Rio that has, it's almost wall-to-wall music, but the film, it's appropriate for that film. My favorite of that year is The Most Dangerous Game, a film that some of your listeners may have seen, the original version with Joel McRae and Fay Ray. That score is absolutely the template for what Max will do just months later with King Kong. In fact, The Most Dangerous Game was partly made so that they could siphon off a lot of the costs to the very, very expensive King Kong, which was in development and about to be shot at the same time. So many of the same cast members, the same sets. They were very clever about how they, a studio that was about to go into bankruptcy, managed to make equivalent of a Marvel movie, you know, that year at King Kong. So those are the ones that stand out the most for me. I would say that Symphony of Six Million, Bird of Paradise, and Most Dangerous Game. And Most Dangerous Game was produced by Marion C. Cooper, a producer who came to RKO partly so that he could get King Kong made. And when he heard Max's music from Bird of Paradise first, he said, you're doing the most dangerous game. I don't care if you're the music director, which Max was by then. I want you to write the music for my movie. And Max did, and they formed a lifelong friendship. But when the studio was just about to go into receivership, and it did, it did go into bankruptcy in January of 1933, and and it could have closed, there evidently was pressure, and this certainly makes sense, from the New York office saying, do not write any additional music for King Kong. You know, this film has cost us far too much. We looked at the stop motion. Some of us don't think this is very good. And Marion C. Cooper the producer of the film said, Max, I'll pay for the orchestra. I'll pay for everything if, if we have to. Just do your best. The records for this one film are a little spotty to find, but there are there is enough out there to show that certainly, as we know, the score was paid for and recorded. And the movie was released in March of 1933. And while it didn't keep RKO out of bankruptcy, it saved the studio from closing. It made it possible for the Astaire Rogers series to start the same year. It made it possible for Citizen Kane to be made eight years later. So yes, I would say King Kong is the most important film score of all time because not only it's the first great movie with a great score, but it is also the film that has inspired so many composers to become film composers. And it led filmmakers like Steven Spielberg and so many others to say, that's the kind of music I love and would like in my movie. King Kong, of course, you had a great chance. 
to really do anything you wanted to, from dissonances to nice melodies, so forth. I mean, it was built for music. Now, King Kong was in 1933, and in 1939, Matt Steiner scored one of the greatest and longest film scores, I think, in cinema history in Gone with the Wind. And I know from your book, it has a fascinating story, particularly with the time constraints that he had to work on the score and the multiple composers which had to help him in the end finish off his magnum opus. Tell us what you know about Gone with the Wind. 
Uh, first, I'll start by quoting Max's right-hand person on the score, Hugo Friedhofer, who said, the whole thing took on the quality of a nightmare. Max had this wonderful relationship with the young David O. Selznick in this one year of 1932 at RKO when they were both starting in a factor early on. And then Selznick left to work at MGM and they didn't work together for a few years. Max stayed at RKO. But then when Selznick went on to create his own independent studio because he wanted to make films carefully and slowly. At that point, Selznick contacted Max and said, I want you to be my musical director. And Max said, I would love to. Let me try to get out of RKO. They've got me under contract. And Max was such a squeaky wheel that he finally got out of his contract at RKO. Well, unfortunately, Selznick was in the process of changing in terms of his personality. He was even more manic, more work addicted than Max was. And Selznick was uh, doing legal speed drugs to stay awake so he could you know, work 24 hours a day practically. This led to him being famously changeable in his mind. He would hire and fire directors and cameramen, and then he'd complain about why did things cost so much? And he'd say at the beginning of a film that he wanted the score written first, but then he wouldn't hire the composer until three weeks before a movie opened. So when he became his own producer, and it got worse the longer he kept working, his film making process was one of genius mixed with chaos. And although Max did join Selznick's studio as its music director, he only lasted for about a year because Selznick exploded over the very good score that Max had written for the first official version of A Star is Born in 1937. And Selznick pulled lots of music from other Max scores and changed it all around. And Max was so unhappy. And I'm, I having heard it, I'm on Max's side on this one. Max resigned and he wrote a very sweet, sad letter saying, I value you greatly as a friend. I, I simply cannot go on working like this. So he left, but almost immediately he would come back unofficially, sometimes without pay, to help if Selznick got in a jam with another composer. And so they did maintain a friendship. Well, flash forward to 1939 and Gone with the Wind is ready for its composer. And Max, by this time, is a very busy staff composer at Warner Brothers, really the ideal studio for him because it produced excellent films. It produced a great variety of films. Jack Warner loved film music probably as much as any studio executive ever did. And Max pretty much got his way there most of the time. The only thing they made him do sometimes was write more music than he felt was necessary to help lift a dull picture. But Max is busy. Busy at Warner Brothers, but Max wants more than anything to be loaned to David O. Selznick, even knowing what a nightmare it's going to be to score Gone with the Wind. Because at that time, you can't fathom now with so much media that in a world before internet and television, where really radio, stage, and film were your only entertainments, and for a lot of people, it was only the movies that you could afford, in that era, Gone with the Wind was one of the biggest stories in the world. I mean, I found correspondence of Hitler after starting World War II saying, I can't wait to see Gone with the Wind. That is surreal. <laughs> I mean, that's the level of excitement about this movie. <laughs> and no, I mean, it's so bizarre, but that's how big it was. Well, Max got what he wanted. Selznick, after endlessly debating who was going to score it, finally said, all right, Max, I want you to score Gone with the Wind. And Jack Warner was happy to loan Max because he could ask basically any price he wanted of David O. Selznick to loan Max out and then pocket the difference. So that was a big win for the Warner Brothers. And, and it was a win for us, of course, as moviegoers, because Max wrote a brilliant score.
problem is he had to write four hours of music in about two and a half months while scoring three other films. And you do the math and it's kind of impossible. And then add to that the fact that every time Max would write something, Selznick changed his mind about what he wanted for the scene and told him to do it over again, often very angrily. In a weird coincidence, they lived basically across the street from each other. So Selznick would call Max in the middle of the night and say, I want you to look at the latest cut of this scene. So Max really just didn't sleep for those two and a half months. And he had to get the shots to stay awake that Selznick was getting. Fortunately for us, Max stopped getting those shots after Gone with the Wind. He didn't need them, and I think they would have damaged his heart. But it was truly a nightmare. And at one point, Max would often, and, and you can understand, I, I, I'm someone who doesn't do well if I have one or two nights without sleep. Imagine going for decades without enough sleep. And Max would frequently have an explosion now and then. Not an angry one at people, but just say, I can't do this, I can't do this. And then they, as soon as someone said, well, we'll get someone else, they'll say, I'll do it, I'll do it. Well, on Gone with the Wind, he said in November, I think it's the very beginning of November, and the film has this huge Atlanta premiere scheduled for mid-December. It's it's weeks away. And in November, I believe, Max says, I, there simply isn't enough time to finish this. This can't be done. Well, Selznick privately screened the film for Herbert Stothert, 
with whom he had worked during his years at MGM. And Stothard, of course, said, of course, I can score this movie for you. I'll put me on it and I'll do it. Well, fortunately, the, the, the town is a small one. And at some party that night, Herbert Stothard said this to someone and someone picked up a phone and called Max. <laughs> and as soon as Max heard that, he just turned into the Tasmanian devil and started writing even faster. And fortunately, he had been thinking about the themes. He had worked out all the character themes before writing the score. But it is a nearly four hour movie. And of course, he wrote more music than was finally used, as is usually the case. And as I've mentioned, he had to write multiple versions of a single scene just to, to please Selznick. So the only way to do it was to do something that Max really, really didn't want to do, which was have music written by other people. And I stress that because Hollywood is famous for some composers using a lot of ghost writers, and it still happens all the time. And it usually happens because people don't have enough time. I'm not denigrating people who have to employ others to get something done. But Max, whether it was pride, generally tried to do it all. But when faced with an impossible deadline, there simply was no option but to have help. So at a certain point, it became, as Max writes on the score, Steiner and Company. His main orchestrator, Hugo Friedhofer, wrote for some of it. And there are several other people. And you can read my book to find out exactly who wrote what. But they were all using Max's themes under his direction. And Max's direction, I mean, think about I, what you, you asked earlier about his theater career. If a Gershwin was rewriting Lady Be Good and they were throwing out a song and they needed to have a different music cue to get to have a scene change, I'm sure Max could be with the other orchestrators and say, all right, cut six measures at D. I want the theme of fascinating rhythm to modulate. You know, you can dictate music. So to a large extent, I'm sure that's what Max did is that he laid out what he wanted musically to his assistants. And that was the only way they got it done. And they barely finished the music of Gone with the Wind on time, because in those days, music was recorded optically on film. That's why it sounds so clean and isn't scratchy. And the mixing process was by our standards today, especially a very complex and time consuming one. So the sound mixers with all the sounds of sound effects and music and dialogue were up just as much as he was. And that was a very fresh film print that went to Atlanta for that famous premiere that you can still see footage of, but Max finished in time. And what's amazing is that now, of course, thank goodness, and as your show reminds us, uh, we can hear most of the music that's out there clean, you know, on its own uh, that we want to hear because there's a commercial interest in it. But at the time in 1939, when Gone with the Wind was the number one movie, the book that had been a bestseller for three years, when they were making Gone with the Wind hats and puzzles and perfumes, David O. Selznick said to William S. Paley, head of CBS Records, Columbia Records, you know, I know people don't usually put out any film music, but the themes for this are quite beautiful. That's, that's the phrase I remember from the letter. It's quite beautiful. You might consider this. And again, I paraphrase, Paley said, no, we're not interested. People don't want to listen to film music. So the score for Gone with the Wind wasn't recorded until the long playing album much, much later. And so Max got what he wanted. He got the film he wanted. He achieved cinematic immortality by writing this beautiful, beautiful score. And he did write a beautiful score, but he didn't win the Oscar. He didn't get it recorded for many years. And there, there were elements of it that were always painful for him throughout his life. And I can't say it shortened his life, 
but it certainly gave him several months of misery and may have contributed to the end of his marriage, his third marriage. So like I say, everything in his life, as great as it was, exerted a certain toll on him. Don, I was lucky to have someone like Hugo Friedhofer as his orchestra, as he himself was a wonderful composer. Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, a brilliant orchestrator for Korngold and, as we know, composer, won the Oscar for Best Years of Our Lives. And Friedhofer was a very candid man. He wasn't Bernard Herrmann rude, but he was very candid and frank. And years after Max died, he was asked about Gone with the Wind. And Friedhofer said it was Max's work. He said, yes, we did some of the scenes, but he said it's very hard forging Steiner. That was one of his phrases. And he, at a time when he could have said, oh, well, we did half of that score. It was really us. He said, no, really, you know, we worked under him, but his was the guiding creative voice of that. So yes, I think it's important. And my book does go into considerable detail about all the other people who worked on it. I'm not trying to minimize the contribution in that last month of the others, but it was definitely under Steiner's direction. That's one of the highlights of your book, as well as your analysis of King Kong. This is the meat of the book, and it didn't disappoint me. I thought it was oh, really, I'm so glad. It, it was fascinating how he was going through the score. One of the high points of the book is your analysis of the scores. I think it's really interesting. The little bits of Steiner's little notes and the orchestra. Yes. They're, quite, they're quite entertaining. Very funny at times, and very, very I, I, I hope, as well. <laughs> yes, I, I hope we can talk about that for a moment, that this is a biographer's dream. That Max, late in life, wrote an unpublished autobiography, which, as you can imagine, is useful for a biographer. Factually, it was very hit and miss, as most people are when they're just working from memory decades later. But he wrote a second autobiography on his scores. And by that, I mean that although he had to write thousands and thousands of notes and not quite enough time in order to keep his orchestrators alert and working with him all night, he would write these funny comments ranging from 
terrible or good puns to gossip about studio politics to the status of his love life let's say you look at these pages and it's like you're hearing a recording of his voice of what's happening now that said and this is another sign of a remarkable brain he can be cynical and funny and sarcastic and naughty in his notes but then when he's writing the music, he will, and this is standard music paper, he'll write the dialogue of what's happening above it. So you know, you can see in Max's hand, here's looking at you kid, or twas beauty killed the beast. And you sense as he reaches the end of a score, and certainly King Kong, I think is the ultimate example of this. You sense not only the, the sense of time running out and the excitement of that, but you sense his passion of being both inside the movie, creating the emotional feeling of it, of Kong on the top of the Empire State Building, but you also get the excitement of the moviegoer in the third row saying, I can't believe what's happening. You know, the bullets are hitting him. And he's writing it in a way that is both instructive in terms of what the sound is that he wants, the musical color, the style, but he's writing with such passion and capital letters and multiple colors to signify different things in shorthand that you sense his utter immersion in the film and that in one bar he's inside Kong, you know, feeling the shock and pain of being hit. And then in the next bar, he's in the mind of Andero feeling terror, you know, being on top of that building. And it's incredible to go through those pages of scores, which, by the way, anyone can do if they travel to Brigham Young University in Utah, because that's where they are, Provo, Utah. You can look at these priceless scores and you sense Max's process. You can see it so clearly. And yes, for all of the cynicism that he had, that anyone had to have to work in Hollywood and, and under the kind of stress and pressure that they had to. At the same time, he was a diehard romantic who was fully committed to the emotions of a movie, even if he didn't really care for the film. Uh, and that was the thing that also struck me is that like Bernard Herrmann, I, I think they were incapable of saying, oh, it's just this junk, I'm going to not do my best. If they took the job, and I'm not saying it's all equally good or that they were always great, but that they were both such committed musical dramatists that if a movie was great, they made it greater. And if a movie was bad, they looked at it and tried to make it better by feeling the intent of the filmmakers and bring that out. 
I feel that Steiner was like Jerry Goldsmith in a way. He always composed music for the best script of that film he was writing for and not treating it, or treating it as if it was a load of rubbish. And Steiner was the yes. same in that, in that respect. To me, there's a mix of composers. Some composers score the action on the screen and some composers score the emotion, like, for example, John Barry. It sounds like Steiner was a composer who could do both. He could do action and the emotion of the music. In a way, he's a pioneer of that sort of scoring as well. Yes, he is. And I mean, he was an emotional person. He felt things so intensely. And I can't help but draw sometimes contrasts or comparisons between him and Herman, since I spent so many years of my life you know, writing about each, that I think Herman always possessed self-confidence. And I think Max didn't have that self-confidence always, but he summoned it from within himself, this desire to do his best, that sometimes self-doubt and lack of time, and for want of a better word, you know, anxiety about it, was a great motivator for him. I, again, I emphasize the romanticism of him. He grew up in a very romantic time, pre-World War I Vienna. He genuinely liked people also. And I think that comes out in his music, that there is a warmth in Steiner. He often writes really good marches, and I don't mean martial marches, but he'll write music for films like The Lost Patrol or the RKO version of The Three Musketeers. And he'll write music about the bonds between men helping each other, saving each other's lives, the charge of the light brigade. They died with their boots on. And I think that that, that and many other examples show that he believed that human beings were essentially good and that we were there to, to be together. And I really believe there is a, just as there is a a darkness to a lot of Herman's music. Not all, there's a great deal of beauty there, hmm. but I think there's an emotional point of view in Steiner's music that is essentially positive, but in the world of King Kong, boy, when those sailors land uh, and, and arrive on Skull Island and start getting eaten, that's terrifying music. And Max could summon fear and terror also when he needed to. And I will also, if I may say, he's figuring it out as he goes along. You know, I mean, film scores are new when he's doing them. So he's trying things and you'll see that he doesn't, for example, Mickey Mouse in later years as much as he might do at the beginning. And for him, the concept of matching action closely that some people called Mickey Mousing for him, he would call it Wagnerian. In operas, the Flying Dutchman takes a step, the actor, the singer takes a step, music follows him. Max felt that on certain films, particularly fantasy films, that matching action closely was valid. But then again, as styles changed, he did it less. And it's still a technique, of course, that's used all the time in Pixar, Marvel, even dramas and comedies, just subtly. But Max could also through compose a scene when he felt that was more appropriate, you know, not catch the action as much. And one of the most brilliant things he did on King Kong is there is no music until the ship approaches Skull Island, which is about, I think, 18 minutes into the film. And it reportedly, even Marion C. Cooper, the film's creator, producer, co-writer, co-director, said, really, Max? No music after the main titles till we get to the island? And Max said, it doesn't need it. It's realistic. You know, you're in Manhattan. It's the Depression. And he said, get me to the island. And then we start the music. And I think not only is that a great dramatic choice at any time, but in an era when film music was still something that audiences were getting used to and critics were getting used to, the notion of bringing in the music, and it's a very Debussy-like first cue called A Boat in the Fog, when the boat's going through the fog and you hear these beautiful harps and the Kong theme played softly on an English horn. He brings in the music very subtly, and then the whole score is basically this growing crescendo as it gets bigger and bigger. And he absolutely has us, no pun intended, in the palm of his hand, you know, creatively on the movie. But I just thought that was so smart on to not have the music at the beginning. 
And he did the same thing 15 years later on the treasure with the Sierra Madre. There's an equal amount of screen time. And it's not until the three men start their adventure and are in this desolate, dangerous place that the music begins, really. And Max said that was one of the hardest parts of being a composer. It sounds like a joke, but he said the hardest thing to know is when to start and when to stop. And, and he said, I can't tell you how grateful I am for someone slamming a door, you know, to like bring in the music or get it out or something. <laughs> right, let's talk about his musical relationships in terms of the films. Starting with the relationship that Steiner had with uh, the Philister Ginger Rogers musicals. And I don't think there's been much written about it until your book came along. How did Steiner adapt his musical approach to those musicals? Well, one of, one of the many joys of getting to work on the Steiner book, which was about a six-year process, was getting to write about something that has seldom been written about, which is his heavy involvement in the Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers film series at RKO. He was on those films from the first, flying down to Rio through Follow the Fleet. So he worked on Top Hat, The Gay Divorcee, Roberta, and he loved working on those. He had first worked with Fred Astaire with George and Ira Gershwin on the Broadway show Lady Be Good. And that was really the breakthrough musical for the Gershwins. And it certainly advanced Fred Astaire's career. And Max Steiner was initially an orchestrator who eventually took over as musical director because it was such a long running show. So Max really enjoyed working on the Astaire Rogers series. And my book devotes a lot of, I think, colorful and hopefully entertaining pages to this, but uh, the short version is that when Irving Berlin say, as if there was more than one, when an Irving Berlin is hired to write the songs for Top Hat, Berlin would write a rather simple melody with simple harmonies. Brilliant, classic, but, but not very detailed. And then a rehearsal pianist that Max found, Hal Bourne, worked with the orchestrators and he worked with a stair to work out the dance number. So they might take, for example, the song Cheek to Cheek in Top Hat 
and take the song that Berlin wrote and turn that into a dance number of several minutes length that had a whole dramatic arc to it and a shape. And Astaire and Steiner and the orchestrators and Hal Bourne, the, the pianist, would all talk together about the music builds. Now it stops. If it's a tap number, the music stops suddenly. So we hear the taps. And so they really choreographed the music together and it was max's job it was he did a number of things he wrote a fair amount of the underscore using all those songs much like say the you know the alan minkin films of the 90s would would remind us of those wonderful tunes in the underscore or the great uh, songs of harold arlen and yip harberg or heard throughout uh, herbert stothert's wizard of oz score max would take the wonderful songs in the fred and ginger movies and work those into the underscore he would also be the senior editor of a team of orchestrators who are writing those six seven minute numbers and in fact on the gate of orsay oh i'd have to look it up it's in my book but it's it's more than 15 minutes long as i recall the continental so this was an enormous amount of music so max was both composer of underscore, editor of all the orchestrations, and a liaison between the top composers like Irving Berlin, Kern, and Astaire, and the music department. Max conducted the music, and sometimes, and, and this is fascinating, this is something I really enjoyed, uh, charting. When they made the first of the Astaire Rogers films, Flying Down to Rio, most of the music was done live on set. So the orchestra is playing while the actors are singing and the dancing is being danced. But by 1934, they're realizing that they can do this in a more effective way. And so a soft piano, a guide track basically is used. And in much of the Gay Divorcee, Astaire sings live very charmingly. And you can tell it's live singing. But then the orchestra will be added later. So the, the tempo is set by the piano that is then covered by the orchestra. Well, by the time you get to the later films like Top Hat and Follow the Fleet, they might completely re-record orchestra and completely pre-record vocals the way it's now almost always done today. So within just three years or so, there's this tremendous evolution of technology. And yes, other people were doing it at other studios, but Max did play an important part in all of that. Top Hat has a couple of great examples of what I think of as Max's contribution. The main title has a tremendous sense of electricity because it begins with this very high line for strings over the Berlin theme and it immediately pulls you in and grabs you.
the very charming song, Isn't This a Lovely Day to Be Caught in the Rain, uh, starts as a very casual dance, almost where they stroll together. And then it builds and builds and the music will stop suddenly for the taps and the phrasing will change from very smooth legato to very staccato and sharp. And that is a combination of Fred Astaire, Hal Born, the pianist, Max Steiner, Irving Berlin, all these brilliant people at the apex of their powers creating these, these great musical numbers. Another musical relationship that Steiner had of sorts was with Betty Davis. He seemed to excel in these Betty Davis melodramas. How do you see that? Well, it's interesting. When asked what his favorite films to score were, he cited romantic dramas like Now Voyager. I think that might have been his favorite film to score, or let's say the Betty Davis films overall, that kind of romantic melodrama. Max loved scoring stories that were about people 
that we could relate to having emotional problems that we could relate to and certainly falling in and out of love being the top of that list. He also felt that on the films of Betty Davis, like a now Voyager or a dark victory or the letter that the music helped us understand what the characters were thinking and feeling that music played a part in telling the story. And it's not to say it didn't play a part in other kinds of films. He also knew that the music wouldn't be drowned out by sound effects. Conversely, the most, tiring and frustrating movies for him to score were the big action movies, uh, particularly Westerns and war films, because he said, you'll write all these notes. And then I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, you'll write all this music and then they'll put sound effects and guns over it and you won't hear any of this music. And then you have to write twice as much music to begin with. So he did those and did them superbly. When you listen to a score like the Charge of the Light Brigade or so many other, I, I've read that Charge of the Light Brigade was on the temp track of Star Wars to help convey to John Williams what was wanted. So Max was great at writing that big action music, but he loved the Davis films because they were about people and he was, and he loved people. He was very sensitive. He liked to draw. So I think that he was someone who really liked to both literally study and, and, and he, he liked to study what people looked like and, and felt like. And he was a keen observer of human nature. He just didn't advertise it very much. He was known as being wisecracking and funny and lighthearted and loved to drink and gamble, gambled far too much. But he was really a very sensitive and observant person. I think it might also have been of that generation of men and artists. It happens to actors too. They don't want to show how sensitive they are in a way. So they act almost a little more macho in life. Max was as we might say today, very much in touch with his feminine side. And he loved writing from the point of view of Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca. He loved writing from the point of view of Betty Davis in Now Voyager. Boy, what a wonderful process that must have been for a creative mind to have all these different perspectives. He got inside the mind of a giant gorilla and made us cry. What a, what a versatile talent. <laughs>
And with music from Now Voyager, performed by the National Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Charles Gerhardt, we've come to the end of part one of our fascinating interview with Stephen C. Smith about his book, Music by Max Steiner, The Epic Life of Hollywood's Most Influential Composer. I do hope you have enjoyed what you have heard so far. And if you want to know all about the music played on this part of the show, go to the music playlist on the Cinematic Sound Radio website at cinematicsound.net. Join us again soon for part two of this interview. Part two then for me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the show, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter, at Cinematic Sound on Facebook, and from wherever you're listening to us today, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Reviews help introduce potential new listeners to the show. While you're at it, head over to TeePublic to find yourself a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt and support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.